This is a CBC podcast. Welcome to a special holiday edition of Power and Politics. I'm David Cochran. 2023 saw some dramatic swings in party support. Polls suggest the Conservatives have pulled ahead of the Liberals and could win a majority government if an election was held tomorrow. But an election isn't scheduled until 2025, and it only happens earlier than that if the NDP Liberal deal falls apart or if the Liberals pull the plug themselves. So what's in store for 2024? To dive into the year ahead and check the political pulse of those three political parties, I'm joined by our three party insiders. Greg McEachern is a former Liberal ministerial staffer and now with Can Strategies. Melanie Richet, former director of communications in the New Democratic Party and now a senior consultant with Ernst Cliff Strategies. And Fred Delory, former conservative campaign manager and partner at North Star Public Affairs. Happy holidays, gang. Good to see you all. Now, during this show, we're going to assess the state of each of your parties and then pick some issues to watch in 2024. So let's start with the governing liberals. The world is going through change, and we need to make sure that this change benefits Canadians. Conservative politicians are arguing that Canada needs to do less to fight climate change. I always say we should have, could have moved faster. Absolutely, there's always more to do. So we can get building more homes, increasing supply, and lowering the prices for families. We know times are challenging, but this is the team that is going to be able to continue the hard work. Even though we have a lot of work to do, Canada is not broken. So what could the next year look like for the Liberals. Greg, I guess you're hoping better, in, in a word. I, I mean, what, what are you anticipating in 2024? Why would you say that, David? <laughs> no, no, it's, it's been fine. a great year. Everything was fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, just, uh, you know, you referred to some um, just month after month of um, really bad polling for the Liberals. Mm. And at some point, um, you know, how did that break through into the into the uh, the inner caucus, the inner cabinet, the inner circle? Um, you know, Liberals, uh, you know, rank and file across the country were certainly um, feeling some despair as um, they noticed the polling, but there was a feeling that the Liberals were not responding. A lot of conversations about whether or not they should have been responding with advertising. Um, but as the as you know, twenty twenty three went on, um, there were some glimpses of hope in December. Um, there were a lot of own goals by the Liberals, but the Conservatives had a few own goals on themselves uh, late November, right. December, and um, you know some some suggestions that the polls may not be as locked in or baked in as as first thought. Mel, it sounds like Greg and other liberals want to see a bit more fight in 2024 than they saw uh, maybe from the party uh, stalwarts in 2023. For sure. I think uh, what we saw in 2023 was a uh, the liberals did not define Pierre Poliev. They didn't define the Conservative Party. So it'll, it allowed Pierre Poliev to define himself. But what we also... Um, maybe didn't see from the Liberal as a narrative that they stuck to uh, throughout the year. Instead, um, what people saw was a government that was responding to the crises of the day, but they were unable to get ahead of them. So they were unable to get ahead of what was happening and unable to punch through with what they were offering people. Um, and I know when you're government, you know, you do have to respond to what's happening uh, from day to day, but you should still be able to punch through in a message. And folks at home should be 
able to understand what that message is. And I think we, we saw a lack of that in, in 2023 in a way that seemed like the, the liberals were almost lost a little bit. Yeah, Fred, there was sort of a, a failure, as, as Mel describes it, to define Pierre Polyev, but also to define the issues, you know, and set the agenda. And, and Polyev just drove the narrative as a result. How did the liberals do better in 2024? Yeah, I think, well, as Melanie said, they need a narrative, they need a story to tell and to tie all of the things together that they've been that they've been doing. We've seen glimpses of it, right? Like they've got some policies that they seem to be getting these wins on, but they're not telling the story. Um, you know, we saw the child poverty stats that came out a few weeks ago that were phenomenal. Um, and I, I had to go basically look for that or someone had to send it to me. It wasn't really out there. They weren't saying it themselves. They're not telling their story. A dramatic reduction in child poverty mm-hmm. for That's, people at yeah, home. Like sorry. 27% was, reduction was, yeah, in child poverty. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's lots of different things they could package together and they need that overarching uh, narrative to tell. And again, we've seen these glimpses. You can see it, it, it it's forming. Uh, Trudeau was strong at the convention in the spring. He had a good message there and then it kind of disappeared for a while. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing uh, in December, the end of the session here, it, it started popping up again. They started at least trying to put something together. And I think in, in the future, we're going to see this finally come together. Greg, there, there's the message and, and you need kind of the proof points, you know, and on the big issues like of affordability and housing, like we are seeing inflation coming down. We may get interest rate cuts in the new year. Sean Fraser's crafting a, a housing narrative out there. But the messenger is mm-hmm. very important. And, and I just, 2024 feels like a critical year for Justin Trudeau, even though he says he's determined to stay on to 2025 and run the next election. What do you think? Where do you think he is? Yeah, and, and I think they're, um, obviously you're going to pivot to your strengths. And for the Liberal Party, Justin Trudeau was the brand, you know, 2015, yeah. 2019, absolutely. Um, but I think back to the Cretchen era, just for comparisons, if you were a blue liberal, you were on the business side, you had John Manley and Paul Martin. If you were on the left side of the party, you had Sheila Copps. There was, there was a lot to put in the window there. And the liberals had to come to that um, uh, realization. Um, you saw who the performers were and who were rewarded. For example, the cabinet shuffle, uh, Karina Gold and Sean Fraser were two that were given um, promotions. But if we were talking this time last year, we might have still been talking about the back backlog in immigration, backlog in passports. And I remember in January hearing from a friend in government that the passport backlog had been basically eliminated. And to Fred's point about not talking about what you've done, you know, they had to be kind of prodded and reminded, you should tell people that the passport in in January of this year, the passport backlog was pretty much gone. So what I see is you see more cabinet ministers out there, like Seamus O'Regan, the aforementioned Sean Fraser and Karina Gold, Mark Miller, you see more of them. And that's a good thing when you're trying to face, um, you know, going into your fourth election, you may want to be presenting the team. You don't have the, the the luxury when you're in government of being able to always pick the narrative. Um, you have to respond to world events. Who knew what was going to happen on October 7th right. when we started off this year? However, um, again, to, to refer to what Fred just said, you've got to find people who can help connect the narrative. This is leadership in tough times, whatever that narrative is, but you need to be able to connect it for folks. But, you know, Mel, there's sort of that drifting narrative throughout the year that, that you highlighted and sort of the despondency in the party over the low polling numbers. In December, things did feel to lift off a little bit, uh, galvanized, the caucus was in a lot of ways, uh, by the filibuster and feeling, sensing mistakes by the conservatives that they capitalize on. Did you see something from them at the end of the year that maybe they can carry into 2024? Right. They seemed to be just a little bit more strong. They seemed a little bit less lost than they had been maybe in the months leading up to it. Um, I don't know that that's totally because the liberals have decided what their thing is or because um, Pierre Poliev had a few bad moments that they, you know, rallied 
around and, and decided to all punch in the same direction. Um, but I would maybe disagree a little bit with what Greg was just saying about the different voices. I think these days when you're running an election, your leader is really important. And we've seen in recent elections, um, I'm thinking of Manitoba, where you kind of, when you ask others to be that voice, mm. um, people don't always know what they're voting for. So I think in the lead up to the next election, when the Conservatives are so focused on Pierre Poudiev because he's doing so well for them, I think it'll be important actually that um, Justin Trudeau is kind of brought back to uh, where he was in last elections. And, you know, he's scrappy. He's usually really good at yeah. elections, so that's an opportunity for them. But um, I think they need to, he needs to be focused and he needs to be able to deliver a message. Fred, the Prime Minister has historically performed his best when he's at his worst. You know, he's right. facing an, an enormous challenge. But I wonder if after eight years and going into this, if there's an oversaturation and that's going to make it hard, uh, you know, to sort of wring out the sponge of public opinion and start over. What do you think, you know, how do they approach that? It's very hard with him because he's been the face of a what's really a positive brand right they, they play yeah. positive politics they play very dirty behind the scenes like i've been the victim of that as a campaigner for the conservatives uh, but the the leader the spokesperson has generally been very positive i think they're learning he's actually also their best weapon and times right. have changed and right now they're you know we talked about their narrative the the positive they need to be pushing there's the contrast and yeah. that's what i think we really saw in the last uh, in december and uh, the end of november right. was them really sharpening their sticks at polyev well, as a wise man once said, it's power and politics, not politics and feelings, <laughs> right, Fred? So, so, Greg, on that, the like, line of like the, year. They, 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 <laughs> the liberals have, you know, tried to cling to the sunny ways thing, um, which I don't know if it works with a, an angry country and, a, you know, a, a three-term prime minister seeking term number four and an opponent like Pierre Polyev. Do they need to sort of, like, chuck that out and adapt to the new reality if they're going to get back into this before the 2025 campaign? On sunny ways, one of the, the issues that I had with it in the first term, in um, especially in question period, um, liberal ministers never um, decided to, or they decided not to remind former, you know, conservative cabinet ministers, former conservative uh, government and MPs under Harper of things that they did, and very right. quickly conservatives thought we've got a free pass here. It's like there's amnesia. So by 2019, they weren't even wearing their own record because the Liberals weren't reminding them of, of that. Yeah, and that the helped contrast. them. That helped them in 2015. It didn't really help them in 2019, post-SNC-Lavalin. There were a lot of issues with that. And again, you know, it's the same way that we defend uh, negative advertising when we describe it as, well, it's a constr contrasting ad. It's not really negative. Or it's their record. You know, there's nothing that's that's false about it. But it is, it is challenging. And again, I, I do think... Think, um, I, you know, I take Mel's point about the Manitoba election, but you had a, a, someone who had no record of being in government, and it's very different when you're... Yeah, he was the change. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you're asking for your fourth term, you, you've got to come up with a, 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 a different uh, sales line. It'll, it'll be interesting to see how they marry uh, extreme right-wing mega-style politics with the Sunny Ways narrative of the past. We just took a look at the liberal fortunes. Now, what could be in store for the Conservatives? Conservative leader Pierre Polyev shaped and drove the political narrative in 2023, and as a result, his party dominated the polls this year. But, as the cliche goes, the only poll that matters is Election Day. So can the Conservatives sustain this lead until that next election? We're going to bring homes you can afford by building those homes. We will remind people every day in every way that we are the only common sense party with a plan to bring home the Canada that we know and love. Why won't they stop sending Canadians the bill and let Canadians afford to eat, heat, and house themselves? Everything's broken after eight years of Trudeau. But the good news is life was not like this before Justin Trudeau. 
And it won't be like this after he's gone. When I'm Prime Minister, I will only do things that workers and consumers have been convinced are good for them. There will be a carbon tax election. I will win the carbon tax election, and whether you like it or not, I will axe the tax. Okay, back with me are our political insiders, Greg McKecker, Melanie Richet, and Fred Delory. Uh, Fred, uh, let, let's start with you. By every metric, 2023 was a good year for the Conservatives. You know, <laughs> they've surged to a double-digit lead in most polls by the end of the year. Their fundraising numbers are way ahead, and they're driving the narrative. How do they keep that going into 2024? You're going to see exactly what they've been doing. Polyev is going to stay to, true to who he is. He's going to keep going super aggressive through, throughout the year. Uh, we saw some of the digital, digital media dominance and the, the videos they put out. Uh, I bet we're going to see a lot more of those coming out uh, because that was so successful. And they're going to keep getting their message out there and running uh, you know, their contrast campaign against uh, Trudeau. Right now, th- they had a huge advantage in 2023 being the only party out there campaigning. Uh, He's been running leadership style or or, uh, general election style uh, tours of the country going around to every region. We're also going to see, I think, a lot of great candidates coming forward that he's been recruiting. Uh, And I think it's going to be, you know, 2024 could be just as well as uh, 2023 was. And maybe that lead will continue to grow if they're the only political party campaigning. So we'll see what the other parties do to try to catch up. So, so Mel, on that, uh, you know, the laser focus on a small group of issues, right, Mm -hmm. has really been sort of at the core of the success. Affordability, housing, carbon tax, these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. If affordability and these things start to ease, how does that potentially change the strategy, you think, for the Conservatives going ahead? Right. Well, it'll be harder to... um, if. If, sorry, if that changes, if affordability changes and people are feeling less squeezed or they're feeling their budgets less squeezed, I think it'll be harder to tap into people's anger and people will be looking for um, more than just, you know, everything's broken. Actually, I'm doing okay right now. So he's going to need to pivot a little bit um, and be able to be more propositional. Here is how my vision of what Canada looks like is different. And this is how things can continue to get better. And I think... Um, Instead of just saying things aren't working, maybe take a little bit of credit because he's been talking mm. about this for the last year. Um, so that could we could see a switch like that. But um, if the economy changes and people are feeling less squeezed, for sure, everybody's message really will have to adapt. But because um, Pierre Poudiev has been able to push that message the strongest, I think he's the one who's going to have to do the most adjusting. Greg, where do you see it going uh, for Pierre Poudiev and, and the front-running conservatives next year? They have to make a decision on who is the Pierre Poliver, who's their leader. Mm. Um, if, if you were to take a photo of him from this time last year and this year, it'd be like one of those old makeover TV shows when you had them side by side because he physically looks different. Um, they, why did they need to feel the need to do that? They ran ads that talked about how nice he is and he's a family man, but his own actions were really quite the opposite of that. So, you know, they spent a lot of money on those ads, rebranding him. And I would argue that those ads were very successful if you look at at the polling. People were willing to give him a chance. At the end of the year, though, his negatives spiked up really high. And was after he blamed reporters for making him say the word terrorism after mm-hmm. the incident at uh, the, the bridge in uh, Niagara Falls. Um, you know, he, he got into a, you know, a verbal argument with, you know, a couple of reporters. Um, you know, the things like firing the Bank of Canada um, had, those are not things that kind of reconcile with the image. So there is a bit of disconnect between who they tried to present to us who he was and right. who he actually was. And um, it seems like 
the more Canadians saw the real conservative leader. And again, you know, there were not a lot of polls near the end of the year that showed this, but um, it seemed like the more Canadians saw that side of of the conservative leader, the less they liked. So, so Fred, on that, because you said you, you, we can expect to see Pierre Polyev continue to be true to who he is, you know, which is a high-energy guy mm-hmm. with very strong beliefs and a focus on a core set of issues. Mm-hmm. And the downside is he's a high-energy guy with a core set of beliefs <laughs> and a laser focus on, on a very specific set of issues. And sometimes that c- gets him into conflict or, for example, the opposition to the carbon tax le- led to the controversy on Ukraine because mm-hmm. of the free trade agreement, right? So how do they guard against that or do they? Do they just think it's working? A 10-point lead is still a 10-point lead. Sure, yeah. <laughs> He's got a massive lead. I don't think there's any uh, there's going to be any adjustment on that. Uh, they will keep introducing him to Canadians, I bet, with, with positive ads and keep pushing stuff out from time to time. But he got and built to uh, where he is by being aggressive. Mm-hmm. And on the point about policy changing and if affordability shifts, uh, he could take partial credit for that. But at the same time, he'll just find other issues too to champion because he's so effective at driving the message and owning it. He's owned the Liberals for the last year and I don't see what would change that. Uh, no, whatever policies are in front of him, uh, he will find that contrast because he is, a, he is an animal of politics, something that we've never quite seen uh, in my lifetime here. Right. So, Mel, on that, like, um, you know, there's a lot of anger in the country and a lot of divisions in the country. And the liberals would argue that Mr. Polyev is fomenting that. It seems to me more he's speaking to it and capitalizing on it, right? Mm -hmm. Because his instincts and his messaging, you know, complement the vibe that's out there. Uh, I I mean, what makes him so effective on that? Like, how is it he's been able to build this 10-point lead that Fred is pointing to? He speaks very simple, right? He speaks to people in a way that they understand. um, And his... Um, what he's proposing is, is very simple and it's something that people can understand. Whereas when you're faced with um, what the Liberals and what the NDP are proposing, it's a little bit more complicated or a little bit more nuanced. And when you have a very simple message and a message that's a little bit more nuanced, of course the simple message is going to be more effective at resonating with people. Um, and I think also to the point that we were talking about earlier when we were talking about the Liberals, um, the Liberals have been unable to say, I know you're having a hard time, here's what we're doing to make it better. They just go to, here's what we're doing to make it better. So in the contrast, um, when Pierre Poilievre is able to tap into the way that people are feeling in a real way, I think people feel heard and understood more than the, the government has been able to do. Right. Like, uh, Greg, my sense in some of the, the challenges with the liberals in the communications is there's kind of a defensiveness of, of, like, it's not as bad as you say, look at direct foreign investment, for example. And while Poilievre sort of speaks to the anger and frustration of people, there's an opportunity there for the government to speak with empathy that they've kind of missed, it seems, and that's allowed him to fill the whole space, right? Yeah, it's the, the old saying that it takes a carpenter to build a barn, but any idiot can burn it down. <laughs> it's really easy <laughs> to go after anger, um, but it's short-lived and it's, and it's a bit dangerous. You know, they're, they're also trying to appeal to Max Bernier supporters, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. what got them into trouble on, on Ukraine. You know, they, they were, at the last week the House sat, they were trying to find ways to, some of the MPs, to do over their votes on the Ukraine, uh, Ukraine free trade deal and uh, on uh, Operation Unifier. Um, and as we've said many times on this panel, uh, if you're explaining, you're losing. Yeah. And the Conservatives were left trying to explain why at the same time Republicans in the United States were turning their backs on Ukraine, seeming to support Putin and Russia, um, why they were doing the same thing at the same time. And I know it made a lot of Conservative MPs really uncomfortable. Yes, a 10-point lead can keep you quiet for a while, but only to a certain point. So, Fred, your response to that, but also Greg's point that anger can be short-lived. 
Uh, in normal times, I, I think that would be true. I'm not sure these are normal times. Right. And, and I know one of the things liberals are very worried about is that not everybody's renewed their mortgage yet. Mm-hmm. And even if interest rates start to go down, they'll still be higher than they were before. And that's a whole new cohort of people cycling into that anger mm-hmm. because even as affordability gets better, the mortgages for multi-years, and that is an increased cost they're going to have to deal with, right? So this is the opportunity for Polyev. Right? This is perfect timing for Polyev to be leader of the Conservative Party where he has this aggressive ability to, to communicate and go out and to, to feed into that anger um, and to channel it. Because if you look back um, you know, from the pandemic, this is what's caused all this. This is what's coming out of it. If Polyev was leader in 19, as I've, I've said before, I think he could have won that election. If he was leader in 21, he would have got crushed because mm. he wouldn't have fit uh, what Canadians were looking at. Right. Uh, but right now, he is the perfect leader for the perfect time for the moment and the movement that's out there. But to Greg's point on the risk of, because of, Jenny Byrne, who, who's running a lot of their political oper- operations, has said publicly in the past, going after the Bernier voters is a key part of, of winning for the conservatives. Ukraine seems to be part of that. Raising vaccine mandates with Joe Biden seems to be part of that. Is there a risk in, in that strategy going ahead in, into 2024? There is a risk. And, I, and I, I was the national campaign manager for the last election. Yeah. So I saw this when the PPC went up. Mm-hmm. And our view of it then, and I would hold it now, is if you go after that vote too aggressively, you're losing the middle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so Polyev is, seems to be doing that, though, by ho- but still holding the middle. But there is that risk that the middle will eventually cave on him if he's not careful with this. We've gone over the liberals and the conservatives. Now, what's in store for the NDP in 2024? We don't agree with the liberals' divisive tactics. We don't agree with the climate denial of the conservatives. We have our own path. We've seen eight years of this liberal government not really take this seriously. They haven't addressed this problem. The agreement gives us the ability to negotiate and force this government to do more. Unlike the Conservatives, whose goal is just to force an election, our goal is to force this government to work for people. Pierre Polyev claims that everything in this country is broken. On the other hand, Justin Trudeau wants to think that everything is fine. He thinks that paying $40 for chicken is fine. It's not fine. It's not normal. Can New Democrats deliver real programs that make people's lives better? The answer is now yes. We can take that to Canadians. We can deliver we can make things happen that give people a break. All right, back with me are our political insiders, Greg McKecker, Melanie Richet, Fred Delory, and Mel, we're going to start with you. Uh, I would say that the end of 2023 was the best for Jagmeet Singh of all the other leaders because he welcomed his second child yeah. <laughs> into the world. But in terms of other than like having twice as many kids to deal with, what, what's he got on his plate for 2024? For sure. I think it's continuing to um, push the government to do more and being able to take credit for that. I think the big challenge for the NDP going into the next election will be to make sure that the things that people are seeing come in like dental care, um, like some of the housing measures, know that actually those things are happening because New Democrats push them to make them happen. Um, if they don't know that, well, I think it'll be challenging for Jigmeet going into the next one. So um, mm. like Pierre Pardiev does a little bit, he needs to tap into that anger, but turn it towards hope, um, which is a little bit different than, than Pierre Pardiev. So um, continue to tap into what people are feeling, uh, the frustration that they're feeling, and show some empathy with the plans that he has to make things better will be uh, what I expect to see from Jigmeet uh, in the next year, but also I think what the party needs to do uh, in the lead up to the next election. Uh, Greg, we saw the rollout of the dental plan, you know, the announcement and its shape, uh, you know, it'll roll out over 2024 before the end of the year. Pharmacare not done making progress delayed until March. Is confidence in supply working politically for the NDP? I know they're getting some policy successes here, but do you think this is a benefit for them. 
Well, to be really cynical, usually what liberals do is we wait to the election, steal the NDP idea, and then we run on it, according to some critics. Now you're just doing it early? Now we're doing it early. <laughs> no, we're, 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 we're doing it openly. Um, but, you know, that your question is really best aimed at, you know, the powers that be at the, at, in the NDP. Um, this is a huge gift. Um, you know, my cynicism aside, this is one where they get full credit for this. This isn't, you know, uh, another party trying to dust off and repackage an NDP policy idea. It is their idea. Yeah. And, and I think it's a good idea. That's um, all you mean. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, you know, in terms of its impacts on positive health care all the way around um, and just some changes that have happened in, in, in Canada over the last 20, 30 years, I think this is a, a, a huge, huge um, impact. I think it's something that they'll be able to talk about for a long time. But, the, you know, the, the challenge for them is to be able to do that. Liberals often, you know, watching question period, you know, they'll get a really, really tough, nasty question from the NDP and they are not responding in kind because they know they need to keep this going. Mm. The challenge for right. the NDP leader, it's kind of like what Fred said earlier about, you know, if Pierre Pulliver had run, run in 2019 versus 21. This is an entirely different world um, post-pandemic. We're seeing things in provincial politics in Canada, like Legault's numbers have really dropped. Um, so the type of person that he was seen to be before was, you know, he, everyone thinks that he's super nice. People question about how serious he is. He's got serious MPs around him, like Peter Julian, Daniel Blakey. And as what I said earlier about the team, that might not be a bad approach for the New Democrats as well. Because right. if they are not running for first place in the next election, they need to be running about what they contributed, um, you know, during this election. So they don't end up like the NDP right. in 74. But Fred, they always sound like the most disappointed political partner ever, you know, <laughs> that they never agree with what the government is doing, but they always support what the government is doing, <laughs> right? Because yeah. let's face it, nobody other than, than your crowd wants an election uh, uh, right now. So, so how do they, you know, move the needle a bit more in 2024? Because the Farmaker thing is delayed and, and, uh, and may, there may not be a full meeting of the minds on that particular one. Mm. Well, look, I think when it comes down to it, the NDP have to realize who their opponent really is. It's not the mm -hmm. conservatives. Like we saw uh, Jagmeet going after Polyev a lot. Trudeau's ultimately his opponent if he wants to get anywhere. That's the one standing in their way. And we're seeing the increased polarization in the U.S. and their politics, and it's here in Canada now. The mm -hmm. conservatives have moved to the right. The liberals have moved to the left. Well, there's two left-wing parties there occupying that one spot. So I don't know how that is going to hold up in the future. Uh, you know, we've been saying this for, for decades and decades. Why is there two parties, like uh, potentially progressive parties on the left? But the Liberal Party's actually moved there now. They've, they've, yeah. they've got a, in, in a way. In 2015, they just they, went there. They used to be a centrist party, right? I mean, we talked about Cretchen and Martin and those guys in Manly earlier. The blue liberals, they don't exist anymore. The reason why he doesn't have them around them, because they're not around. There's no one here. The party is a left-wing party now. So now we have two left-wing parties competing for the same vote, which, of course, as a conservative, I love it, because it's going to help us come up right up the middle and win the next election. Yeah, I mean, your, your point is right. I mean, there are geographic battles northern Ontario, southwestern Ontario, you know, interior of British Columbia, where it is an orange-blue battle. But, you know, Mel, on that point, this polarization Fred talks about seems real. Mm -hmm. and, and, and if Prime Minister Trudeau and Pierre Polyev are both there in 2025, as they both say they're going to be, mm -hmm. it feels like we're going to have the most polarized election outside of Quebec, certainly in English Canada, mm -hmm. maybe ever. Mm -hmm. Where does the NDP fit into a political dynamic like that? Right. I think that there's an opportunity for the NDP to actually, to your point, not just go after Pierre Polyev, but to also go after Justin Trudeau in a way where you can say, look, 
this guy was not going to do any of the things he did this year unless we were there to push him to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, he will not help you the way that you need to be helped. He doesn't understand what you're going through, and this is why we're different. So you can, they can fight that battle with the, with the liberals, but where they can also fight is with the conservatives. And I think that there is actually an opportunity there that would not exist with an Aaron O'Toole, would not even exist with an Andrew Scheer, but that is really real with Pierre Podyev. When he's talking to workers, when he's talking about, you know, class-based issues, that is not a fight that Justin Trudeau and the Liberals can have handily with Pierre Podyev, but it is a fight that New Democrats can have with the Conservative Party. So I think that there's an opportunity in the lead-up to the next one to be able to do both those things um, and, and convince people to, to vote for... Um, the New Democrats in the next one. You know, Greg, I look at those dynamics and I wonder if that becomes a vote split between the New Democrats and the Liberal that elects Conservatives or if people who were New Democrat supporters and were afraid of Aaron O'Toole are going to look at Polyev and say, I got to vote Liberal this mm. time. You know, I, I see yeah. both of those things as possibilities. Right? Yeah, but no. Um, <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm going to disagree with both uh, my colleagues here. You know, in terms of labor, you yeah. look at the uh, the amount of outreach that Seamus O'Regan has done, the way that they've handled some really tough labor negotiations over the last six, eight months. There is a case there. And to Fred's point that, you know, the Liberal Party is on the left, I would say the Liberal Party is still a centrist party and the center moves. It's easy to look at Jean Chrétien when he's facing Preston Manning, demanding that the budget be balanced and see it as, you know, blue liberal party or or party on the right. You know, in 2015, the liberals made a case for running on a deficit. They totally blew the NDP away with that. Mulcair was not ready for that and they were able to win. And then it's really hard to judge when we've gone through a worldwide pandemic and we've had to put money out the door so that people could actually survive. Is that on the left? Probably. Was it the right thing to do? Absolutely. So I'm not so sure that the Liberal Party is entirely on the left. And you see that with, you know, some of the cabinet ministers that we're starting to see kind of emerge now that the focus isn't entirely on the prime minister. Um, You know, uh, industry minister Champagne can't leave, you know, an event without going around the room, collecting business cards, trying to find ways to promote business in Canada. That does not sound like a leftist agenda. But it's because he's got big subsidies to offer, which is a progressive kind of leftist agenda agenda economically, right? Not, but, you know? but they also have to an economy that they have to rebuild. Right. The stronger the economy, hopefully the better the mood the, the, the Canadians will be in. Right. So, so Fred, the New Democrats in this dynamic then, in 2024, what, what do they need to do beyond sort of like forcing Trudeau to deliver on the, the commitments in the, the confidence and supply agreement? Like what, what are the sort of larger political plays that Singh and company can make to, to move the needle in their direction? Well, it's to get part of the deal actually done. There's things that keep getting delayed, 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 uh, and they're still propping up this government. So they're, they're, they're propping them up and not getting some, all of the achievements that were at least promised. You know, I mean, a few months ago, we had these stories that Pharmacare is supposed to be done by Christmas. It's not. Uh, so this, they've got to start um, actually getting the stuff done. Politically, though, um, they need to outperform the Liberals in some way. They need to jump them. They're you know tight with the po- number of polls. They are close there. If they start building it, I say there's a party on the left, and the NDP could get squeezed. The Liberals could get squeezed as well. They were squeezed once before, yeah. before Trudeau, yeah. back to 2011. They got thrown down to 35 seats. That's still possible where one party emerges from the left. Yeah, Mel, the, the, you know, it's a fun point, the landscape of the country. I, I mean, I think Greg's analysis on the shifting of the Canadian centre is mm-hmm. probably right mm-hmm. in, in a lot of ways. And you see it that, you know, the majority of Canadians do vote for 
quote-unquote progressive-leaning parties. But that just also creates a more competitive landscape for a party like the NDP. So, so how do they do the thing? Like, okay, say Pharmacare gets done by March, as is the new deadline. Right. That's done. What then? What do the NDP do next? Totally. That's a good question. Yeah. And, and I think it needs to be focused on how people are feeling and what could benefit them. So if the economy is still not doing well, what are we doing concretely to make sure that people are you know, better af- able to afford their mortgages or better able mm. to um, make ends meet? What, what I want to say, though, is I want to go back to the reason the NDP got into this agreement and whether that reason is being accomplished. And to your point earlier about everybody thinks that Jigmeet's a nice guy, we saw that in the last elections, right? We saw it in all the focus groups. He was the most popular leader, the, people, the person that people liked the most, but he was not the person that people thought could be prime minister. Mm. So how do you change that? This deal is an opportunity to show Jigmeet and is an opportunity to show the NDP make decisions that will benefit people in a real way as a fourth party in the news because they are, you know, holding the Liberals to account. They're getting them to do these things. So I think if they can continue to show that they're credible, that they will make decisions that benefit people in a real way um, and show that they're the ones really doing that, I think um, that continues to address that thing that they that we've all noticed needs to happen if Jigmeet were to be a real contender to be prime minister. Today we've been going over what to expect in the year ahead for the Liberals, the Conservatives, and the NDP. But we're going to open the floor to our political insiders for their picks of issues to watch. Greg McKecker, Melanie Riche, and Fred Delory. So Greg, watch your big pick of the issue you're watching in 2024. The um, will he or won't he question around Justin Trudeau, um, or maybe it's Hamlet, to be or not to be. <laughs> um, but whether, you know, he has said in your in the interviews that he is going to stick around. Not sure how else he, you can answer that question. But you've got to make that case to two Canadians. One is the Liberal Party. And I think this fall, um, you know, I heard a lot from folks, Liberal folks, that were asking where their party was. And they slowly kept building on the housing announcements following the, the London caucus. And then he's also, the Prime Minister also has, has to tell Canadians why mm. they deserve to give him uh, another chance. And what I'm looking for is, um, we kind of have, have talked about it a little bit. I think Doug Ford has used this in the past. But you've got to tell Canadians that you've heard them, um, that you're, you're working hard, but you're aware of what they're going through. And I think he's got to make that case to, to two very distinct groups of people. Um, liberals mm-hmm. tend to be, right now, morale was good as the, uh, in, in terms of caucus, as a house rose. Um, but I think you know, he's got a big case to make uh, in, in, in terms of Canadians. Yeah, he's got the internal audience, the external audience, a lot of stakeholders and a lot of cranky stakeholders, Mel. Totally, totally. Um, and the... Uh, talking to those both groups of to both those groups of people is not easy, right? Because sometimes the message needs to be slightly different, and you don't want to be contradicting yourself in the message to a point where you start alienating um, one or the other. And managing a caucus that is unhappy is not an easy task either, especially when you're trying to tell electors um, you're ready to to govern for for four more years. So that that is difficult. Um, I think to your point, he needs to do just a better job at it. He needs to uh, be focused and he needs to to stick on it. Um, Not just in a way that is like responding to what's happening, but in a way that is forward facing and um, telling people what, what he is going to do. Fred, having worked closely with Aaron O'Toole, you have a sense of a grumpy caucus and how difficult those things can be. Uh, What's your take on Greg's pick on on the will he or won't he question of the prime minister? Yeah, it's the ultimate question of setting up the next election. It's the only variable we're not 100% sure of. Mm. Uh, At the end of the day, I think he's going to go. And I do think, you know, despite the the polls. Go as in run or leave as prime minister? Go into the next campaign. Right, okay. Bad choice of words. Uh, he is he is ultimately still the Liberals' best asset, yeah. despite where all the polls are, despite where 
people, you know, nine, eight, nine, ten years, whenever the next election is, as prime minister. You collect a lot of enemies over the years when you're leading a country internally in terms of different share stakeholders and stuff that are upset with you. Uh, but at the end of the day, he is a great uh, campaigner. Uh, and if they figure out that story to tell, uh, both the pro and the, the contrast against your opponent... Mm. It's going to be a heck of a fight. A great campaigner in a six-week campaign, but it's like he's got a two-year campaign ahead totally. of him right now, right? So that, totally. that, that becomes a challenge for him. Mel, what are you watching in, in 2024? Yeah, so Fred mentioned it earlier, pharmacare. Um, that's, I think, going to be uh, big for New Democrats, but also big for, is this deal going to last? Are we going to see... Um, the NDP continue to be able to say we got the government to do something? Or is this the thing that people decide, you know what, this is no longer working? I'm paying attention to that. I know conversations are going well currently, but how that evolves over the next few um, weeks, how that evolves over the next few months, I think will be important as it relates to um, what the NDP is able to go back to voters with in the next election, but also just how is government running? Is it going to continue to run um, smoothly with the government being able to rely on new Democrats at committee in the House, et cetera, right. or, or what happens with pharmacare, um, whether negotiations stop? Fred, how do you see pharmacare as a vote mover in a campaign? Because I know we're all watching it very closely in Ottawa because it's part of the confidence supply agreement and, you know, that there's negotiations on it. Is it something you think the country uh, is seized with on whether it goes or not? Not at all, yeah. no. I think it's a vote mover in the House of Commons, yeah. and that's where the Liberals need votes right now to right. keep their government afloat. Yeah. And I think from what uh, Melanie has educated us on this uh, on this plan over the uh, number of weeks on this <laughs> show is that all they're building right now is the framework. They're not actually putting a single dollar behind yeah. Pharmacare. Yeah. It feels like... Is that part two after the next election? Is this like are we now setting up uh, the future uh, agreement between the Liberals and the NDP if they're both uh, Mm. can cobble up enough seats to uh, to defeat the Conservatives in the House of Commons? Right. Does the carbon tax election become the pharmacare election (laughs) in some ways? You know, or carbon tax in terms of moving NPs to vote uh, to keep the Liberals afloat? uh, I don't think actual voters outside of that are going to. Uh, move much on that. Greg, what do you think? I, I mean, if the NDP and the Liberals do come to some sort of an agreement here, the idea is that it would be mutually beneficial, but do you think it will be with Canadians? I, what I noticed over the fall was um, it, it was almost like in the background there was a let's put a little water in our wine um, over the issue of pharmacare. The urgency wasn't there. Um, I know Fred mentioned a missed deadline, but no one was too exercised about the deadline. I think from the NDP point of view, they probably wanted to get the dental care deal. Um, that was one that they really needed, yeah. and I think they wanted to have that before the end of the calendar year for sure, uh, something that they could go back to their constituents and, and, and talk about. But again, like I'm not sure exactly what the problem is going to be solved because as been described, this just might be a plan for a plan. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's kind of happened, I think, in the mood of Canadians is because of the pandemic and, and the economy, um, people used to be really exercised about addressing climate change. And then as the economy went bad and it hurt them, it became something nice to have, which is mm-hmm. really sad. There may be the same approach from parliamentarians about uh, pharmacare, whereas when we looked at this back a few years ago, this was going to be super huge, but there are other things from an economic point of view we should be addressing first, and housing has really sucked up a lot of the oxygen politically. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, they, they say they're making progress, Mel. It's moved from the end of the year to the end of the fiscal year, I guess, you know, around budget time for, 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 for the new deadline. You know, so, so we'll see where that goes. So, Fred, um, there is another big variable uh, in, in this year, and, and that's your pick of what you're watching in 2024. It's huge. The U.S. election, we're heading into an election year. Mm. 
starting off with primaries, where we know Trump is going to be the Republican candidate, Biden's going to be the Democrat candidate, one's currently going through impeachment hearings, one's got a, I can't keep up with how many trials he's dealing with, yeah. uh, but they're going to, you know, it, for the last year it's been simmering, it's going to explode into the news big time and into, our, into everything we watch, everything we listen to, we're going to be inundated with U.S. politics. Uh, it's, you know, I do podcasting now, the top 50 political podcasts listened to in Canada, 45 of them are U.S. shows. Yeah. Uh, it has huge impact on us. And the polarization where you have the, the Republicans where they are and the Democrats where they are, uh, we're going to be inundated with, with ads and this is going to be dominating our television and our radio stations and the issues are going to uh, amplify here. So this is going to be the main story of 2024 by far. Yeah, Biden facing impeachment hearings with no underlying crime and Trump facing I, indictments for a million crimes right. seemingly, right? But, but you know, Greg, on this, the, 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 the capacity for this election cycle to influence Canadian politics, Joe Biden winning his candidacy, probably not a big impact. It's all about Trump in terms of the spillover on the border and this mega style tactic that your crowd is trying to use against the conservatives. How do you see this playing out in, in the Canadian domestic political vibe? It, it, just from a media perspective, I mean, um, th this has caused huge human resources repercussions at big networks like CNN and Fox News. Yeah. Whereas, you know, it's such a blood sport and the way that they covered the news ended up with massive changes, ratings up, ratings down. And we consume a lot of that media. So it does take a lot of our own um, airspace in terms of what we watch. Um, there was a lot around the way that, um, y y you know, you can't say that the Trudeau government did not try to make real efforts with the Trump administration. There was a lot of, you know, Broadway diplomacy, mm -hmm. things like that. But ultimately, you're dealing with a person that you can never count on from day to day. So again, it, it'll be one of those situations, I think, that Canadian government, um, like they did the last time, are going to have to start looking to, say, the 35 states that are our number one trading partners. Yeah. And, and, but Mel, just sort of like on, on the political volatility uh, a, a Trump resurgence creates, you know, uh, I've heard a lot of liberals talk about how they want the federal election here to be after the U.S. election cycle, because they want Trump front of mind as yeah. they try to frame Polyev. I mean, is that a real strategic option or do people have a wall between those two in their attitudes? Right. I, I think it, it would absolutely be a gift to Justin Trudeau and to the Liberals if Trump were to win in the States because then you're talking to people and, and it's so top of mind, right? It's not... Um, uh, Trump's kinds of politics is not, you know, something in the background or something on the back burner. It is something that you are faced with every day. So I think absolutely it'll have an impact on, on our election if it comes afterwards. Um, and, and I think... While um, while people while MAGA style politics is here, while that division is in Canada, I don't dispute that for a second. I think the majority of Canadians look at what's happened in the states, and they are still like, "Oh my God, that can't happen here." So while that is here and it is happening here, I think people are still um, a, a little bit afraid of that. So I think mm -hmm. that would be why it would play into the you know the favor of the Liberals um, if if Trump were to be elected. Well, one of the things that you know we underestimate the value of is Elections Canada for all of its yeah. challenges. I mean, the way it runs elections consistently and yeah. the ballots are the same and there's none of the gerrymandering that we see in the United States. So there is an integrity to the process that sometimes is missing in various parts of the U.S. Mm -hmm. But Fred, what do you see as the potential spillover impacts you know, of a Trump-Biden campaign and a potential Trump win here in Canada? 
Well, we're seeing it right now. The liberals in the last month have been hammering um, the conservatives, calling them mega Republicans. Uh, so we're gonna, uh, that's going to be amplified now with all of the ads and the billions of dollars of advertisement that's going to be happening. Mm-hmm. So I think we're going to be seeing a lot of that, and the conservatives are going to have to defend themselves against that in some way. Is that an effective strategy? Like To me, the Trump comparison has been so overused. You know what I mean? Going back mm-hmm. to 2015, 2016, people use it, it for it everything. Go back to when Harper was compared to Bush. Like there's always yeah. You always line them up. Look, campaigns are about... Whoever tells the story the, the best way uh, wins, and if the liberals, uh, you know, they'll have their work cut out for them. But uh, if they if they tell that story and convince Canadians um, of that, and that's where the Conservatives need to be careful, particularly with the PPC type stuff, to make sure they don't play into that. Greg, uh, do you see? We got about a minute. Do, do you see it as a viable strategy forward for the Liberals? Like that, that there is there is you know advantage to be gained by a, a Trump nomination at, at minimum. If you don't want to be wedged avoid a wedge issue. If you don't want to be called a MAGA Republican, don't do things that are in lockstep with the Republicans. Um, you know, recently, uh, polling was not great for Joe Biden, but the midterms ended up being really good for the Democrats. And it's traced back to women and the issue of abortion. Um, one of the things that right. I'd be watching for, if, you know, a conservative backbencher brings another abortion bill forward, you are asking for that comparison. Mm. Right. Yeah. No, that's an interesting point. Mel, a uh, quick 10 seconds on that. Yeah, I I mean, I, th- I think that's right. I think if you um, stick to your issues, if you stick to your message of affordability and housing, you are less at a risk of having that comparison work. But if you have these like small mistakes uh, that regular people don't like, I think Pierre Pelliev is, is at risk uh, for sure. Okay, gang, uh, we've got to leave it there. I want to thank our Political Pulse panel, Greg McKecker, Melanie Richet, Fred DeLore. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.